got Aang on the line right here. What do you want to ask? How do you handle like dealing with like problem tenants? I think if you see a problem tenant, you really want to make sure you find out the root cause of the tenant. A lot of times the root cause is because you had so many discounts on your rent. Um, when you discount rent and you, you're desperate for tenants and you take anybody, don't lower your standards. Retention starts at acquisition. Retain good tenants. It's You'd save that leasing fee, you save that turnover time, that vacancy, the marketing fees and all that stuff. When you're chasing just occupancy and chasing just, I need someone to move in, so I'm going to give somebody two months rent free. That's, that's unfortunate, but then potentially they might not be the greatest tenant to continue being renters. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast with your host, Brian Briscoe. In this podcast, we bring some of the top professionals in the apartment investing field to discuss various aspects of the apartment investing journey with the sole purpose of educating listeners to make wise investment decisions. The Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast is sponsored by Four Oaks Capital, bringing you high yield returns through apartment complex investing. Welcome to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast. I'm your host, Brian Briscoe with Four Oaks Capital. I'm very excited for today's show. We've got two amazing people on the line with us. Uh, we've got someone who's an expert in this industry, Ang Tang, and someone who's up and coming, Claudia Bessereau Class. And first of all, we're going to bring on Ang. And just for anybody listening, we're going to put their bios in the show notes. So check those out if you have a second. Um, but that said, Ang, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Appreciate yeah, it. Appreciate, appreciate you. And this is this is always a lot of fun. I always get to you know, meet new people and, and learn more about uh, other ways of doing things. So um, that's it. Ang, go ahead and uh, you know lead us off by telling us about yourself. Uh, I'm happy to. First, um, meeting new people is one of the funnest parts of this. I actually think this industry is, I've been in many industries, um, one of the friendliest. You know, there's lots of people who want to help each other out. It's not like zero-sum game. There's so much opportunity out there. Yeah, uh, so absolutely. partnerships is key and just you never know it's a small road, right? So my background, uh, I have been a real estate investor for 12 years, but mm-hmm. I want to go a little back into personally, you know, yep. I was born in a refugee camp in Thailand. My parents are Cambodian and that was very dark time in history in terms of uh, Khmer Rouge and genocide yep. there. And I remember, uh, or not, I don't remember, but my parents told me of times where essentially we were hit hiding uh, in the jungle and you know, had to evade the, the soldiers. I was lucky enough to be a refugee in America, come here when I was three. I'm lucky enough to be, to have grown up in America, lucky enough to grown up poor, grown up uh, hungry, um, and lucky to have all those situations. Not really feel like I was any of those things. And you know, we, my parents worked 24 seven, seven days a week, like any in most immigrants parents do, yep. especially when they don't have any education. You know, that was sort of my upbringing. And it gave me a really strong hunger and desire to have economic security. When you don't have economic security, you want to pursue it. Yep. I was lucky enough to also be very good at math and very good at data and economic uh, data patterns and so like anyone in my shoes I was day trading and playing poker uh, <laughs> and got into Wharton and for economics went to investment banking that helped shape sort of my 
mathematical understanding of finding patterns and leveraging data to make informed economic decisions. Mm-hmm. And so I, those two things in terms of the hunger, the, the background, and my abilities helped me propel myself into financial freedom. Mm-hmm. And financial freedom for me has always been about having enough to provide for your family, to mm-hmm. secure their security, and to have the freedom to do whatever you want. And when I was, and I'll, I'll go into my projects and other real estate stuff, but when I first got my first um, apartment building, when I was age of 23, got lucky, unlucky, because it was a financial crisis. I helped cause it, sorry. Uh, <laughs> you book four billion losses of subprime assets. Yeah, they cost subprime for a reason. <laughs> Yeah. Um, the net effect of that was I, it turned me off from really investing that much in stock market. I didn't like mm-hmm. volatility. I like sort of the, the passivity as the, the, get, the regularness, the calmness of monthly checks. Maybe not calmness of tenants, but of monthly yes. checks. It also, the prices went down by two-thirds. So you will get buying opportunity in 2008, 2009. Yeah. But, um, Real estate was on sale. So, yeah, that was yeah. great. I should have, should have bought more. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I said the same thing, you know, I, I bought as much as I could, which is one condo. And that was, you know, just down the road from where you're at right now. But it was, I, if I were able to go back to that time, I would have bought up as much as I could, but yeah. Can't. Yeah. I, I actually bought three properties before I bought my first house. So those sort of my, yeah, I, I always say that try to make sure you can have your passive income streams before you, you know, focus a lot on yourself because I think that help build that engine faster. Um, but one of the things that really helped me was this passive income, getting a thousand dollars a month around there, mm-hmm. and having that freedom to make better or at least bolder decisions mm-hmm. after the financial crisis. A lot of my cohorts and friends went to MBA. I went to the Peace Corps. I went to Peace Corps in the Republic of Georgia, making $200 a month, uh, which you know, didn't include housing. You had to get my own housing. And it's the toughest conversation I had with my parents saying, hey, I'm going to go to this war foreign country, making almost nothing, <laughs> where I was making a lot, now making yeah. nothing. Uh, and I said, what are you doing? Like, it's essentially the same situation as they've had. And I really, yeah. that was sort of one of the reasons. I, I was lucky to meet my wife there, uh, but I was lucky to have an income stream, not necessarily to use, I didn't actually use, I'm generally a very prodigious saver, uh, but to just have that security. And going forward during my corporate career where I switched jobs, I made moves, um, career-wise, I, I was in lots of different industries. I always saw real estate as sort of my side hustle, my, my thing that I really loved, but uh, that gave me better decision-making. I could go to my boss and ask for that raise. I could make a counteroffer. I could make both decisions because I wasn't afraid of getting fired or losing a job that was my entire income stream. Mm -hmm. Having just a little base layer gave me a lot more confidence to make both decisions. That's how I was able to 5X my compensation in in 10 uh, after, you know, going out of Peace Corps. So so I want to highlight that too, because that's part of the motivation that I've always had that is financial freedom to do whatever you want. And you can make dumb decisions and recover from them. 
you can make this, but you can, you have the ability to make those decisions. Uh, And, you know, I think for me, that background of being hungry, trying to help my family out and achieving that. And then now the last corporate job was at Apple. I led data science on Siri. So if you're using Siri, it's not working very well. Blame you. Not working anymore. Sorry, Sammy. All right. All right. So, so you caused the financial crisis and yeah. all series problems are your fault too. So got it. Um, I know who to call now. Great. But, uh, in, in between, I, I worked at uh, private equity and uh, gaming and uh, I launched Apple music and a bunch of different things. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but, yeah, I mean, yeah, I was gonna say a lot, a lot of, a lot of really cool things there. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine what it would be like being born in a war torn area. You know, I, I did, I didn't do Peace Corps. I did. Uh, I served a mission for my church, which is mm-hmm. very similar, except we don't get paid to do it. You know, is is, is really the only difference. But um, I spent two years in South America, and I, I think I came back with that appreciation of the U.S. that that you had as well. Where, you know, you said you were very fortunate to grow up here. I didn't realize how fortunate I was until I was about twenty years old, and I left for two years and came back. But uh, um, agree wholeheartedly, you know, definitely we're, we're fortunate to be here. And incidentally, you mentioned your, your math, uh, ability. I got two degrees in math and I kind of chuckled when you said that because we were working on, you know, algorithms to beat video poker, you know, when, when we were in, in grad school, but, you know, never, never had enough money to really make it work out because of the minimum bets, you know, but, you know, theoretically we could have beat video poker and, and made millions, but, uh, um, <laughs> anyway, long, long story short, but, uh, so yeah, so good, good on you. And I appreciate what you said about the, the security for income as well. You know, if you have that extra stream of income, it gives you more options. You know, I think you mentioned specifically if you're tied to one job and you're so worried and, and you're clinging and you're worried about losing it, you don't have a lot of options. You're not going to be bold, like you said. You're not going to be able to go in and ask for that raise or the new position or promotion that you're looking for. So that the extra income streams bring options, which you know, I think is what everybody wants is they, they, they want options. But that said, uh, you, you, you talked a lot about the reason you're doing it, but if I could, if I could get you just to you know, narrow in on that one subject, you know, what is your big burning? Why? A big burning why has always been my family. And now that I uh, run Tozy Capital, I feel like it's sort of a family business where I, I, I feel like my investors are my family. I have text messages of them giving me very grateful language and, uh, saying, you know, I'm very thankful and, you know, all this stuff. I, I love that. I love mm-hmm. saying distributions. I love doing all this stuff. But I, I just bought my parents a house. I was able to give my family love great things that they couldn't afford. And that's for me, I've never really needed that much material wealth. I've mm-hmm. never had it. So I've never needed it. I know I can live off $20 a month. Probably won't be as comfortable now. Since, uh, but, you know, it's something that. I always wanted, and then when I had kids, I just had a second kid. I was seven months old, almost eight. Yeah, you know, I think it's it gives me a lot of drive, and I think that's a big thing. I I had these periods of time where I first got some success, and my parents got into the middle class, and I kind of lost my reason why a little bit. I was I was so hungry to like get them out of poverty. Then I met my wife, my fe- my my uh, future wife. Um, mm-hmm. And that gave me a lot of reason. Why. Then I had my first kid. Every one of these moments actually sort of drove me to be more ambitious, to, to do more, to strive for more. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think 
I've seen the same thing, you know, as my family grows, that there's more impetus on being more and more, I mean, successful, not, not for the personal accolades, but what it does for, you know, your family and for your kids, you know, the opportunities you can provide them that, uh, you know, you didn't grow up with. I, I grew up with, you know, plenty that you didn't. I mean, I, I say this all the time. I, I thought I was poor, you know, growing up, you know, you, you had the opposite life where you really were poor and you didn't realize it, but, you know, I kind of uh, wish I could go back and, you know, erase those feelings that I had because I, I wasn't, but end of the day, I think family is very, very tied to a lot of people's, you know, wise and uh, yeah, do, do more for the people you love. I think it's amazing. Yeah. And, and I really like the fact that uh, for me, it's always been a feeling of gratefulness. And when you're grateful for what you have, when you're grateful for, you know, you're not really like jealous or envious of what you don't have, especially since you never experienced it. Like, I don't know what, you know, having yeah. a regular Thanksgiving dinner looks like uh, for a long time. Like, it, I, when I first experienced it, oh, that's cool. I, that's, yeah. So I, I think to, I try to do that. It's hard now with my kids. I have yeah. like much bigger house. I have avocado trees, say mountains, um, yeah. and they're going to be very spoiled. And I don't know how to not do it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's hard. It's hard, you know. But uh, yeah, that's that's one of the the parenting you know things is try try not to try to give your kids more than what you had without actually spoiling them. And uh, my my oldest daughter edits this podcast, so I'll you know I'm not going to call any of my kids super spoiled right now because you know I'll get, I'll get an angry phone call from her later. But uh, that said, she wouldn't, she wouldn't do that. No way. Anyway. Um, so let, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, one of the deals you guys have done. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, one of your projects? Yeah. I would love to go into my first project, which is emblematic of sort of next five. And I was doing these like basically every other year and mind you, I was working 40, 50 hour job, uh, yeah. a little more hours at the same time. I bought a triplex in the LA area. It was mm-hmm. kind of run down. Bought for $126,000, I believe, and put like $35,000 cash down. I was lucky enough to make some money in, out of fast banking. And, and even though my portfolio went down like half, so I had some money. Um, yeah. I, I renovated it. I, I remember very clearly I was, and by the way, I was doing this living in DC as well. I was at DC at this time, flying in yeah. LA. My dad, my parents were in LA. So, in my first many apartment buildings, real estate, and all my real estate now, essentially, it's it's not local to me. And that's actually been a very great learning experience to try to understand process. Yeah. Because if everything was local, I would just buy locally. And I've always lived somewhere in expensive areas where buying real estate is probably not the best economic decision mm-hmm. to do so. So, um, you know, so for me, I, I, I flew there you know during some some weekends you just paint um to redo the cabinets uh really learned that white is very easy <laughs> navajo white and you know gets spruces up uh got three tenants and had some turnover at that time but one thing i did was get a really strong stream of income right away but create more value from the multifamily you know three units you probably talk about this all the time where you essentially get forced appreciation Yep. And did a refinance uh, within a year. I think it was like eight to nine months. Got basically all my money back from what I paid for and it was hooked. Did it again next year. Did it again next year. Uh, which now, had more money you, to start. That's did you keep on doing the, like the, the three plexes or did you start scaling up from there? 
I did three plex, four plex, three plex, four plex, single family, four plex. So it didn't really scale up from there. Okay. I it was sort of all I knew. I, I didn't even know what Burr was, and just apparently what I did. Um, I mean, you, I, you can say that you invented Burr. I mean, go go ahead. I mean, that's it, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I house hacked a couple of places before I knew what the term house hack meant. But yeah, sometimes yeah. you just figure it out. Yeah. yeah, I think you just figure it out. And then if if you see sort of, you just put it, put it on a spreadsheet. That's what I did. Like I saw, hmm, I can put this much money in, can make this much money. That's better than a lot of my other options. And yeah. what I try to tell everybody now I talk to, and I have Zoom calls all the time and investors or just people in general, know your options. Know how to optimize your capital. That's finance 101. That's what investment bankers do. They try to move money around, low yielding things, maybe your bank account or your home mortgage that you're over, yeah. you're under leverage and you you could get 3% and move it to something where you could get more. Um, now, of course, you have to have the confidence to, to get that higher yield, that 10, 12% yield, which you know, I think back then was easy. It was like 20% yield on your money. Yeah, cool, cool. I think Claudia is smiling over there because she's closing on a threeplex. You know, hopefully, was it next week? Yes, it's going to be next Friday. Okay, it yeah. When, when you said when you said uh, threeplex, I, I I saw her face light up, and I'm like, okay, I know, I know, this is this is going to be perfect for her. But uh, so, Aang, one one question for you: When did you make the leap from you know the small multifamily into the larger stuff? When my time was worth more, and I realized that. Um, when I needed to scale, when um, I was going to mortgage limit caps. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, right. Yeah. And I think, you know, we, when you do residential loans, it's very different than commercial loans. It's actually mm -hmm. easier to do commercial loans like if yeah. you're yeah. doing professionals. Um, and I think, so it was like four, four years ago, I started scaling up to bigger properties. Um, I actually started to invest with other, I was, I was very busy at the time having, you know, job and first kid got my uh and try I, I was a an lp investor into other other folks and one thing i tried to do was always learn from them so mm -hmm. i tried to be an informed investor and understand what their process be very annoying and nagging but uh yeah we're fortunate to get a few folks who are receptive to them yeah awesome awesome i appreciate that a lot um, I, I think you, you dropped, you know, a gigantic gold nugget right there. It's, you said, when I realized my time was worth more, you know, and I, I think that's what, uh, you know, a lot of people don't realize or they don't, maybe they don't value their own time enough, but when you realize your time is worth more, it changes everything, you know, um, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, you spend a lot less time down in the minutia and a lot more time, you know, that in, in different aspects of life. But uh, I really appreciate that. So, so one question, and then last question for you before we bring Claudia on: uh, What's next for you? So we've had a lot of success, and anyone doing this for the last five years is probably very successful. It's, the market's been very good, so I you know, yeah. can't claim all the success. We did, we paid all these missions during COVID too, so I was fortunate to be in great economic areas. Um, we're we're about to close on 164 units in Atlanta. We got a few other uh, apartments in the pipeline, closing past a thousand units now. And I've also pivoted slightly into senior living. Mm -hmm. Senior living is a very strong asset where I love the cash flow. Mm -hmm. Thematically, what I try to do with my investment business is buy for cash flow. Mm -hmm. have some kind of moat around that cash flow so that it's not as easy to get in. So that's why I kind of avoid 
where Claudia is buying because there's a lot more people. Um, but that's you know when you don't have that much money, that's where you have to go. Um, I usually stay within the juicy medium, five to twenty-five million above. Mm-hmm. 50 million, you're facing these big institutional funds that have low cost of capital. They can overbid you. And I've been overbid by five, $10 million. I'm like, I, could, I was barely making money on this. Now they're like, yeah. how do you paying it? Because they, they, they cost capital so much cheaper. And then finally, you know, we're growing and I've you know, strayed a little bit to other forms of investing. We have some debt products as well as um, Bitcoin mining. Is a big part of our portfolio now, and we're doing data centers to support that. So, it's a pretty good, cool stuff. Nice, nice. Sounds sounds fascinating, fascinating. Well, that said, we're gonna shift gears and uh, bring Claudia on the line. So, Claudia, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here, and thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> yeah, no problem. So, start off same way. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so. I'm currently in Germany. My husband's stationed, he's an active duty army stationed in Germany. So we're here for until he retires in two years. So in the process of um, actually when we were, he got orders to come to Germany. <clears throat> it's when I separated from the army, when I finished my contract, I was yeah. served for seven years. Me And when, um, you know, with the transition, it just kind of worked out really well where I was going to, you know, trying to figure out what I was going to do when, I, when um I was going to come in and, and come with him. And it's just real estate started to be a very, you know, real possibility. <clears throat> and um, I wasn't going to work. Um, we have two small children, four and six-year-old um, kids. And so um, we decided that I was going to stay home. kids. Yeah. And at that point, I started thinking of, you know, what was I going to do with my time? And I started um, looking into real estate and reading mm-hmm. about real estate, listening to bigger pockets, and just like being very intrigued um, by the possibilities. My background is in medicine. Um, I'm a family medicine physician. So, you know, I've been training for the past, like before when, you know, I was working for the military, I was heavily training, you know, in, in, in medicine. And then I, you know, I was working. And so real estate, I've always heard the benefits of real estate, but it never really was something that I, I thought I, I would, you know, I would be doing. And then when the opportunity came and I started learning more about it, I just, it was so appealing, the entrepreneurship aspect of it, um, yeah. you know, the the opportunities, the multiple opportunities with real estate that I really got interested in it. And um, the more reading I did, the, the more research I did is and, and learning that it could be done long distance. Like I could do long distance real estate investing from like overseas. And so I just, um, I read David Green's book, Long Distance Real Estate Investing. That was like a, such an eye opener and such a, you know, like breakthrough for me, like, this is doable. And so I really, we, we moved during the pandemic. Um, we got to Germany, you know, we settled down and then I took a, a real estate course just to teach you about the basics, um, you know, uh, some criteria on what, you know, investing and learning more about investing, learning how to build my team, um, how to approach it. And so um, starting January 1st, because I was like January, you know, 2021, I'm going to start mm-hmm. actively like looking and putting offers in. And I did. I started, but with this market, you know, it's been a crazy it's market. Tough. Yeah, it's tough it's for tough. everybody. Yeah. And, and so we put several offers in. I had to walk away from uh, two other properties. And uh, finally, now we're under contract for um, a three-unit property, and we're actually closing next week. Yeah. Um, so that's been a real estate journey. And uh, I guess we're, yeah. we're here. 
Yeah, that's that's super super exciting, you know. And uh, it was I was about three years away from my retirement date when I started putting a lot of effort into it. And something else that Ang said that that I, I related to is military retirement. You get a pension, and I was able to look at that pension as the same security as Ang was looking at that, you know, thousand dollars a month. And that gave me a little more license to get more bold. You know, I, I think prior to when that military salary was like the only income for our family. I didn't want to mess that up, you know, but once, once I get towards the end and I see the light at the end of the tunnel and I mean, your husband's going to have that same pension as I have, you know, but that, that gave me just enough confidence to be able to, to go bold, to go big, you know, and knowing, knowing that I had that to fall back on and, you know, come hell or high water, you know, once I hit my 20 year mark, which incidentally, when this, by the time this airs, I'll be fully retired. But I'm that close. I am that close. But anyway, knowing knowing that you know I had that little safety blanket really really helped me out a lot too. But uh, so so Claudia, what's what's your big burning why? For me, like it was mentioned before, like family, my children. So we have a four and six year old. It you know I want to be able to have that freedom, financial freedom, to be able to like attend their events, be there for them as they grow. I don't want to be tied to like a job that's going to be you know, very demanding and intense. And, um, and I think, and, and I know real estate offers that opportunity um, to be able to have more flexibility um, and be able to like do more with it. Right. So um, be able to, if I do medicine part-time, then I can do real estate part-time and be able to just um, be able to build a legacy with real estate. And, and, you know, that entrepreneurship spirit of real estate, I love that about it. The networking, the, you know, the possibilities, the diversity within real estate, so many opportunities within real estate. And like, we have a single family home, you know, we're on a, under country for a three unit property and, and, you know, we want to keep on growing and just, um, I'm learning so much and it's just so inspiring seeing people like Aang and what you've done. It's so inspiring. So thank you for, you know, doing this and, you know, being open to um to answering my questions. Yeah. Well, I mean, without further ado, then you know, since we've got Ang on the line right here, what do you want to ask? <laughs> so, um, I I love your journey. I think you know you have so many obstacles, and it's you've overcome so much. It's amazing. So I commend you for that. You know, and I feel like as far as obstacles, you know, going through real estate, it, it there there are benefits to it, but there are also the things that happen within real estate, like unexpected, or you have to w- walk away from a deal. And so like for you, how do, how did you um, feel when you have to walk away from a deal after you invested time, effort, you know, like even money, right? Because you spend money on the inspection, spend money on, you know, different things. How do you cope with like the emotions afterwards when something doesn't work out and you have to walk away? That's a great question. And I probably felt that a lot more personally in my first few deals when I was doing this all myself. You know, I think when you're putting so much effort, right? You're the, you're birthing a baby, you're building a business. It's all, it's all a very similar feeling. Yeah. And yeah. when you, you're going to close, you sign a contract, you get that tenant. It's like an amazing miracle feeling, but when it falls apart and when it falls apart, when it's not because of you, because it's financing, because of, yeah, you know, it's because of financing or because of, you know, the sellers, because of unforeseen, you know, things you found out about um i've had a deal where uh, i kind of re- I, it fell through because i had I, I i had something i had an issue with my credit that apparently i didn't know about and i resolved it right after but 
it's prevented me from getting that that you know that ability. And and the seller said I gotta move out. Uh, even though I spent like a lot of time trying to work looking at uh, looking at this. It was a triplex as well. Um, I regret it because like the market was going up a lot at that time. I was like, ah, I could have got that. I was like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think when you go for for me, and I love your story too. For me, when you when you go into sort of a business of real estate investing, not just real estate investing to you know, um, you know to, to provide yourself passive income, you, you actually go to this process of you want deals to fall through if it's justified, and so you. Put it, it's more about scale. You try to make you go into it thinking that most of these aren't going to go through, right? In fact, if you go one for one and everything, then like maybe you're not putting that wide of a net on things. And so I, I make offers on five things every week and I negotiate on all things. I have sh- I've been doing this for quite a while. You know, the first iPhone is always very expensive to build. Prototypes very expensive. The millionth iPhone very cheap. It's very good to use. And so when you get better at these things, and I love that you're going to do more of this. If you have the mindset of that, I'm going to do more of this, that this isn't my only deal. You have this abundance mindset. And so I talk about this all the time. When you don't think of it as like my only thing, it's like, I'm going to do more. I have the capacity to do more. Then you think, shift your mindset differently. And you said, that I learned a lot from that deal falling through. I learned a lot of not doing that again or... Maybe that fell through for a good reason. You know, the market, it might be on the top, it, you know, uh, in some markets. And then in San Diego, it feels like it. So, so you never know. I think you learn from all these things and you get better. You apply rule of thumbs when you make decisions, uh, you make faster decisions, uh, and you can do more decisions and so that you can narrow down to that, that gem. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add, and maybe maybe it's the analytical math side of me, but you just try not to get emotionally attached to deals. And on your first couple, it's extremely hard not to get emotionally attached. I mean, even with my, you know, heart of stone, you know, just trying, trying to get these deals to work. You're just, you get so excited about things, but really you just got to have, you have to step back and realize, you know, am I getting emotionally attached to this or am I making a business decision? You got to try to make that business decision. Um, we had an early deal fall through. And once again, not our fault. Property we got under contract was at a 90% occupancy when we got under contract. When we started, when we put the LOI in, it was at 90% occupancy. And we were trying to get a Freddie Mac loan, which requires 90% occupancy for 90 days. Mm-hmm. And between the LOI and the end of the due diligence period, the occupancy fell to 75%. I mean, it was a 40 unit. You know, they, they lost six tenants in 45 days, you know, but uh, it took us out of the deal. And, you know, it, it felt terrible because, you know, it, it's, it's always nice to close. You, you want that next deal and you want the reputation of always closing. But at the same time, 90% to 75% is a big deal. And we walked away and it was, I mean, end of the day, it was a business decision. And that's what we kept on coming back to. It's a business decision. Thank you. And my other question is, when working on a deal and you know that the tenants will potentially be a problem, like going going into a deal, how do you handle like dealing with like problem tenants? Or do you have like confidence in um, cash for keys or negotiating with them or uh, evicting them? Um, yeah, great question. 
And if you live in California, invest in California, you probably face this all the time, uh, which is why I don't invest in California anymore, but I used to. And I have a lot of experience with this specifically of, you know, in California, when you're buying a triplex, for example, or anything, it's actually potentially more valuable when you don't have a tenant in it. It's actually interesting, right? Like, do you want a tenant? You want predictable cash flow? Do you want no tenant? I think when you have no tenant, you can have a clean slate. Um, when you're buying, for example, when I was living in San Francisco or that area, you know, houses that have no tenant, investment houses that have no tenant, and it went for five to ten percent more because mm-hmm. you had to pay fifty thousand dollars for today's rate, fifty thousand dollars to just get a tenant out. Because there's lots of restrictions with evictions and um, that stuff. I think one of the things that we do now is, I think, of course, when you're buying properties, especially apartment buildings at scale, you want a certain occupancy to get rent. I think if you see a problem tenant, you really want to make sure you find the root cause tenant. A lot of times the root cause is because you had so many discounts on your rent um, when you discount rent and you, you're desperate for tenants and you take anybody, don't lower your standards. Retention starts at acquisition. When you retain good tenants, it's you save that leasing fee, you save that turnover time, that vacancy, the temp, you know, one month vacancy, two months, whatever it is, the the marketing fees and all that stuff. But if you, how do you do that? You have to to keep your standards up. For, for tenants and you build formulas over time in your mind and how you do it. But yeah, when you're chasing just occupancy and chasing just, I need someone to move in. So I'm going to give somebody two months rent free and they're the kind of person who needs that and the economic conditions warrant it. And, you know, that's, that's unfortunate, but then potentially, you know, they might not be the greatest tenant to continue being renters, especially if you want to raise the rents. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, he had a hit a couple no things, you know, square on the head. You know, first of all, it's it's where you invest. You know, bring that back. He says he doesn't invest in California because of the restrictions. I we lean towards landlord friendly states. You know, and we make no, um, I mean, no excuses for doing it. We go to landlord friendly states. You know, or at least neutral states. Um, so the you know at least the deck is stacked in your favor and and we have them cash for keys right now with the eviction moratorium you know there, there's gray areas where you can still evict and you know as of i think it was last night the cdc re-extended one more time the eviction moratorium you know we we have been able to go out to certain tenants who haven't paid you know for several months do cash for keys you know and if some tenants are amenable to it i mean i think a lot of the tenants see the writing on the wall and what a lot of a lot of people realize is they're racking up a lot of debt, and that debt's going to follow them once the eviction moratorium's over. Most of the landlords, most of the property managements and owners are going to send those people to collections, and it's going to eventually bite them. It's eventually going to hit their credit reports and everything else. And so I think that the cash for keys does work with the people who are reasonable and realize that eventually it's going to catch up to them. And helping them to see that kind of helps too. But Aang had pretty much laid it out. You know, you, you, you take care of that when you put a tenant in, you know, and if you mm-hmm. find the right tenant, you don't have to worry about that on the backside. Now, inheriting tenants, you know, that's, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. The screening, yeah. I think, part. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. 
My last question is about, um, you know, when you approach, like approaching upgrades or remodels at a new, at a property that you're painting, do you have a software that you use to estimate like repair costs or do you have any advice on that? You know, some of my recommendations would be every time you walk the property, bring a contractor with you, give them that incentive and then they'll give you a good cost estimate. And don't just bring one, bring several to have lots of walks to the company. So that, that's, a, you know, and just keep those notes in your mind of understanding what the repair costs in that area, what, uh, and then you can get a good average. Yeah, I think knowing, basically going with the intention of that you're going to do it before you do it gives you all the, potentially all, hopefully gives you all the data points to make the decision to do it buy it, invest in whatever it is to remodel, make decision to, do I want to change the carpet to vinyl floors? Do I want to place these cabinets? Do I want to put exterior renovations? And all these things are, there's an NOI to it. There's a there's return ROI to it, right? It's, it's ultimately just a business. It's all these investments, tiny investments. And I really recommend to also put yourself out of it from an emotional personal decision. I think in some areas, I think it makes sense to really put yourself into it and think I'm going to buy this and I want this to be a nice place and my taste is really good. And I want, um, and maybe that's in areas that have strong appreciation. I generally don't invest for appreciate, I invest for cash flow. When I invest for cash flow, I'm not necessarily wanting to live there. That wouldn't, at this point in my life, I, I you know, you can't think of it like, hey, would I want to live there? If you start putting that, lens into it you will overpay you're overbuild you're over make yep. things um... yeah yeah and i i think what he said there is absolutely key you know when you walk a property bring a contractor you know and offer to pay them for their time too i mean it, it's it's part of the risk capital that you put in but you know bring it bring a contractor offer to pay them an hourly fee to walk the property with you you know and uh um, that way they're incentivized in a lot of ways. They could, I mean, if you purchase the property, they, they could get a job. But and the other thing is just, you know, we, we would talk with a lot of people coming up front. You know, we would, me and one of my partners were both in mentorship programs. You know, my other partners had informal mentors, but mentors nonetheless. And we would also talk with people who were doing the same thing in the same areas. You know, hey, what does it cost for flooring in this area? What does it cost for so we we did a lot of a lot of both where we were just talking to other people. Hey, do you think six thousand a door would buy us X, Y, and Z? And and listening to to what the responses were. But really, I mean, end of the day, the contractors are going to have the best information because they're the ones that are be going to be doing the work. Anyway, that said, we're we're about out of time here. So one last question for both of you, Aang, you get to go first. How can listeners learn more about you? Uh Please go to my website, Tozi Capital, uh, Capital.com. Sign up. I, I love to do monthly educational webinars. Um, these are all things that I, I, I sort of approach everything as a, I am very self-interested in learning how to not pay taxes legally and how to use bonus appreciation and how to do invest in this and that, or how to get an S. Lock loan from your equity, all these random things I try to uh, provide. Um, I, I'm starting this website, Financial Freedom Decoded. It's not live now, but yeah, so I love to chat. Uh, even if you don't invest, you know, I think educating yourself, learning is, is one of the most valuable things. Awesome. And we'll put a link to the website in the show notes. So if you're interested in anything he has to offer, hit the show notes up and uh, you know, tap the link. Claudia, same question for you. Um, I'm in LinkedIn. Claudia Becerra class, B-E-C-E-R-R-I-L. 
C-L-A-S, um, and LinkedIn information. Um, I don't have a website um, right now. Um, and um, my email is uh, classcapitalinvesting at gmail.com. All right. And we'll put links to your LinkedIn profile and to your email address uh, in the show notes as well so people can contact you. And uh, incidentally, you know, we didn't have a website until right around the time we closed on our first, you know, big property. So, you know, not having a website is not uh, not necessarily good or bad, but it took us a while to get that up too. But uh, anyway, thank you so much to the two of you for coming on the show today. I think this was a great conversation. You know, I learned a lot. I hope you guys had a good time too. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Diary of an Apartment Investor podcast today, brought to you by Four Oaks Capital. If you'd like to know more about how to invest in apartment buildings or want to be a guest in our show, visit our website at fouroakscapital.com slash podcast or email us directly. If you're still listening, you obviously like the show, so pull out your phone, tap subscribe, and leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app. And we'll see you again next week.